when people would ask me what I wanted to do, I, I couldn't think of anything that really made sense other than like, um, I'll be a doctor because right. I've got doctors in the family. So whenever I would say that people would go, Oh, that's so great. And <laughs> admirable. Go for it. You're smart. Yeah, exactly. Kind of, you know, pat me on the back or whatever. And it felt good, but it didn't feel really genuine to me uh, when I would say that. Welcome back to the Own Your Awkward podcast. I'm your host, Andy Vargo, and every episode we get into what has made our guests vulnerable and how they've learned how to own their awkward in order to live their best life. Stay tuned so you can hear every awkward moment in today's show. Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of the Own Your Awkward podcast. I am super excited today to have another amazing podcast host, a learner, lifelong learner of soup from superhumans, Eric Corman. He hosts the Eric Corman Show. Uh, local Seattle guy has done a lot in the community in the entertainment industry as well. Eric, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I am doing pretty well. You know, um, my son went to school today, and so that is always good when that happens. <laughs> when the day starts out on on plan, that's always a good way to start the day, right? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, you know, I I love that you mentioned your son. You start out with that because that you lead with that right in your podcast as the purpose for the discovery that you're on with learning from other people. Uh, and and maybe this is what you're going to say, but I like to start out asking everybody, what's the most positive thing that you see right now in the world? Wow. Okay, that that is um, an interesting question because. There's a lot that uh, is kind of overwhelming right now. What do they call it? Like a, a perpetual crisis that's going on. If you think about climate change and the economy and the Ukraine-Russia war and the political situation and the divisiveness that we're seeing in our country, there's a lot to be worried about. <laughs> and <sure. laughs> when I get kind of worried about all of that stuff, I think about our kids and I talk to people who are in college or people who are still in in grade school or middle school or high school, and they have ideas for the future. And I get inspired just by listening to them. And I realize that these are our future leaders and they're optimistic. They've got a plan. So I think everything's going to be okay. That's, you know, that's a great perspective because we inherit things in life, right? We don't know what we're going to get, but sometimes we can see it coming. And so we have to start planning and it, it might be that we're, we're in, you know, different point in life than than someone else and we're, we see the next stage coming or we see a, a new job we're going to take on and we know how it was left but i hadn't seen that perspective of them having the foresight to have plans for what's coming down the road for the world they're inheriting yeah like for example my son he's he's only 13 right now but he's talking about how he wants to build say a, a huge desalination plant that could provide clean water from the ocean to a city the size of la Wow. So, yeah, I mean, that that's just like him riffing on what he wants to do, you know, that and building flying cars and teleportation machines. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, <laughs> you know, you just amplify that times the millions of kids that are out there and billions, really, if you think about it. Right. It'll be it's going to be OK. Yeah, that, that's amazing. I, it just reminds me, I was just yesterday at a, a, a showcase for collaborators who are in an incubator program with the Washington Maritime Blue and everything they do is sustainable. And there's one guy there whose program is to pull carbon out of the air and turn it into graphite to create products that we need. And another one that's working on boats that don't use propellers, that don't use a blade 
to make flying boats essentially. And you just look at these things that people are coming up with that you don't even realize how much there's a need for something like that. And to have this, someone at 13 have this plan to have, to be able to get clean water to an entire, to one of, you know, one of the largest cities that we have. Uh, that's amazing. The foresight. Yeah. Now, granted, he hasn't like, you know, scoped it out to the point where he can build it tomorrow, but at least sure. he has the concept. Well, and that's, it starts with the dream, right? You got to have that dream and then you can start doing, creating the learnings that you need in order to fill in the gaps of, of what you need to know. Yep. That's amazing. Well, well, that's great. I can't wait to see that developing over the next few years. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So, um, Eric, I, I bring everybody on, I put them on the spot. I like, I like to tell them the world wants to know what your awkward is because we all have something. So what is that awkward you've had to own in order to, to live your best life? Now, are we talking about an experience that happened to us just to be clear, or is it more of a, a characteristic? You know, typically people lead with a characteristic, um, but if there, sometimes people have an event that created a turning point. So however you want to define that is, uh, we don't have a lot of rules here. Uh, <laughs> if, if there, you know, really is about what is something that really has changed your life by saying, I've had to either deal with or accept this either situation or characteristic and now i can use that in a good way okay well if we're going to go in that direction what i can tell you is that growing up in southern california where i did and i, I lived there until i was 18 it was especially outside of la i, I lived about 90 minutes uh east of la in a, in a town called redlands uh and and that um was at a time uh, where the it, it was kind of like a, a John Hughes movie, if you remember, like The Breakfast Club and all that mm -hmm. stuff. And so, you know, everybody wanted to be, well, not everybody, but a lot of people wanted to be among the popular crowd and so on. And and the way to do that in, in the Inland Empire in Southern California was basically you needed to be an athlete. You needed to be like on the football team or a jock because nothing else was really valued, uh, at least in, in the culture that I was growing up in. And so I tried being a football player. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I went out for the football team in ninth grade and, and there weren't really any cuts. So I think they let me in just because they let everybody in. I uh, was a pretty good wide receiver um, uh, at five foot eight and 110 pounds at the time. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I did well in school. So, um, I learned the routes. I, I didn't make any mistakes when it came to where I was supposed to be. I never, I, well, I, I hardly ever dropped the ball when it was thrown to me. Uh, mm -hmm. I had pretty good hands <laughs> doing all the right things. I was doing all the right things, except I wasn't the fastest kid on the team. Oh, so, um, so I didn't make first string, um, which was, which was kind of unfortunate because I thought, well, you know, I, I, I know the, the routes better than, than the guy who is the first string player. He drops the ball. I don't drop the ball. Why did he get right. the nod? But he was, he was faster than me. And that was really it. And he was also a little bit taller than me too. I think he was like five ten or something like that. So, uh, so I still did the thing. I, I got on the, the team buses and, and, and went, uh, to the games and I, I felt like, Hey, I'm, I'm, you know, in this, this crowd that, uh, is where I wanted to be. It was kind of fun too, because like the girls volleyball team would come along or the girls softball team. And, you know, there was this rapport that I was never really part of before. Cause I was, I was a nerd, you know, I was, I was an <laughs> academic type. That's, uh -huh. that's, that's what I was. 
And, uh, and, it, and finally, um, after, after the four games of just sitting on the bench and when the fifth game came about, it was against our, our biggest rival. It was uh, another junior high school. Cause our, our schools were seven, eight, nine, instead of, um, six, seven, eight for middle school. So they call it junior oh, high. Gotcha. Yeah. So ninth grade, even though I'm technically a freshman in high school, I was, I was the, the top of the class in my junior high school. So anyway, it was against the rival junior high school. Um, it was, the game was at the, the university of Redlands stadium. Mm. There were 2000 people there, which wow. we never saw for any of the other games. Cause they were not in a university stadium. They were just at another school field. Mm. So, um, so we were up like 21 to nothing, uh, in this, in this game against our arch rival. And the coach finally said, all right, uh, Corman, you can go ahead and, and get in the game. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I didn't get a chance to play wide receiver, which is the, the position that I'd been training for all these weeks. He put me in as defensive back. So oh, I no. had to be the one guarding. And, and during practices, occasionally I would play defense and mm-hmm. I was never one to really throw my body around and, and try to, you know, give these big hits on, on people it just wasn't my thing. Cause I right. weighed 110 pounds, you know? That's yeah. That. There's, there's just some physical attributes at play there that make a difference, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so I would kind of, you know, get through those, those parts of the practice where I had to play defense, but I never really enjoyed it, but Hey, I get to, to go into a game and actually play for the first time. So I was, I was super pumped up. The adrenaline was flowing. I, I run onto the field and uh, the the ball gets snapped to the quarterback of the other team. And what you do as a, a defensive back is you start by backpedaling. You run backwards to uh, watch what the wide receiver is doing in case they do like a quick turn or something like oh, that. Sure. But then when they, when they, cause there's about a five yard difference between where you are and where the other wide receiver is. But when they get up to where you are, you're supposed to turn around and then run with them. Well, I started backpedaling so quickly that my momentum just carried my feet over my head oh, and I did no. like this perfect backward somersault. <laughs> but the the receiver that I was supposed to cover and just kept on going and you know guess what he was wide open. Uh-huh. And right. the quarterback of the other team saw that he was wide open, threw the ball to him, he caught it and ran for a touchdown. Oh no. On on my watch. <laughs> <laughs> the biggest game of the year in front of yeah. 2000 people. <laughs> And I was absolutely mortified. I mean, I, sure. I just could not believe what just happened because this was, this is a game that we you know, really wanted to win. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I just like, you know, pretty much ran off the field at that point and, and tried to make myself disappear. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, my teammates were saying to me, well, you know, what happened out there? It looked like, you know, maybe the other guy tripped you or, or what, but I, I just couldn't bring myself to tell him that, no, nah, the, the other guy didn't even touch me Right, me <laughs> running backwards too fast. And, and I, um, you know, I, I tripped over my own feet basically and, and gave up that score. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, so that was pretty much the end of my football career. Okay. <laughs> at that point. That, that was one of my, my questions was running in through my head was, uh, did you get back out there on the field? And No, no. Yeah. In fact, I, I didn't even ask to go back into that game. Uh, mm-hmm. And now because the margin of victory was only two scores instead of three scores, uh, the coaches wanted to make sure that they actually won. Right. So, um, yeah, and I didn't ask and 
that was that. I, I went in and the very last game on, on a kickoff, uh, um, which again is not something that I had really practiced for. Uh, we were on the kicking team. Uh, the, the, there's like a little string that holds your shoulder pads together mm-hmm. and, and it broke somehow. And so my, my, I, um, I'm here, I am like on the field, the string that's holding my shoulder pads together had somehow broken. And so I'm running and the shoulder pads are flopping around and I'm thinking oh, the, no. the, the last thing I want to do is try to tackle somebody because I'm right. <laughs> And, and that was it. You know, that was the only other time I was in is one play in the very last game that didn't really count for anything. So, yeah. Uh, and well, I ended know. up, I ended up pulling like both of my hat, my, my Achilles tendons also um, around that time. So oh my gosh. yeah. So that, that was just kind of insult to injury in a way or injury to insult, I guess, in this case. Well, and you mentioned just a range of emotions there through that experience between, you know, stepping into this camaraderie with being on a team that you hadn't experienced before and then you know going through that to the excitement of getting into being in the game and then mortified from the results uh what did what did you take from that experience as you moved into other things that you endeavored that might have been out of your comfort zone well what I realized is my dream of playing football because I, I love football since I was 18 months old. I mean, mm-hmm. I watched my dad watching it. And so I was an LA Rams fan. I know that doesn't go over well in Seattle, but I've, <laughs> I've switched. I'm now a Seahawks fan and have been for a long time. But, um, but when I was 18 months old, I, I walked around with a football helmet on my head all the time, like during the day, right. I put on my Rams helmet and it didn't come off. Mm-hmm. So, um, during elementary school, I, whenever there was recess, we'd play football. Um, I was usually the quarterback or the wide receiver, you know, on, mm-hmm. on offense, and do whatever needed to be done on defense. So it was, it was just part of, uh, part of my DNA. And, and I also played uh, tennis. I did get into that, uh, once I got a little bit older. So, so that, that helped. I, I transitioned to uh, tennis in a bigger way. Okay. Uh, so, nice. so that helped. It's not the same thing though, because that's more of an individual sport and I played yeah. singles instead of doubles. So yeah, you're part of a tennis team, uh, which I was, but it didn't have the same feeling as a football team because you didn't need to rely on each other in the same way. And the camaraderie wasn't the same because the folks are kind of trying to outdo each other in tennis Mm -hmm. because you're kind of jockeying for position to be either on the varsity team or stay off the junior varsity if you can. And and there's like the ranking, like, are you the number one player on your team or are you you number two or number three? So it, it just wasn't it wasn't as supportive as mm-hmm. football that strange as that might sound. Well, yeah, there's, there's, when you have a, a sport where you relied on as a team to make plays together, you know, you could, like you say, the difference between a tennis team where you're all individually playing to score better for your, your score, your school versus we're not going to make this play. If we're not communicating, if we're not in sync, if I don't know to automatically run this direction, based on the play we're calling without having to have someone sit down and explain it to me. Okay, Eric, we need you to go over here and do this. Uh, it does create a completely different level of connection and reliance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, it does. And so there was a, I think a, a, a bit of a grieving process that I went through because of that. Cause mm-hmm. uh, just, just having this idea of, of playing football, having to let that go and then know that this is not my thing. And it, it's, knowing what I know now about football, I'm really glad I didn't (laughs) stay in it. Okay. Just because of the injuries that happen and Mm -hmm. playing football in, in uh, the the high desert in Southern California. I mean, 
where I was, it was 90 degrees or hotter from April through November. Wow. So when we were doing practices in August, it would be over a hundred degrees and you're doing wind sprints in pads. Yeah. I mean, it's brutal to do that. And so even just, just that, um, and not to mention again, getting hit by people who are heavier than you are. uh, (laughs) Right. Not the wind out of you when the the air is already lighter. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Just, just not a good thing. So I I had to make peace with that. Now, did you find that it was, uh, hard to watch football for a while or was it hard to stay in love with the sport when you weren't able to play it well i i play for fun whenever i could so that helped um yeah yeah, i was it was there was a little bit of bittersweet you know feelings about it but i still enjoyed watching it you know didn't really diminish my love of the game itself and 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 now it's kind of a guilty pleasure again knowing what i know about the head injuries and the just the overall toll that it takes on, on people's bodies and, and so on. But, um, but yeah, it, it, it did kind of color my, my view of it. Um, and, uh, it also taught me that I do want to find some sort of like team experience like that. And when I got into actual high school, I tried out contest speaking. So okay. there, there's, there's actually a, and I don't know if you've heard of this, but there's an organization called the NFL, the National Forensic League. Yeah. Yes, so, I have heard. Of yeah, yeah. So the National Forensic League, you know, was my NFL. So I got in, into public speaking and doing speaking competitions as part of our speech team at uh, my high school. Nice. So that sort of replaced all of that. And uh, it obviously public speaking is not a contact sport. <laughs> sure. <laughs> You're and, safe and, from, from that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it doesn't have the rankings in the way that say a, a tennis team does. So the, the team was genuinely um, supportive mm-hmm. and um, there were both individual uh, rankings or, or, you know, you could, you could win like first place in extemporaneous speaking or first place in impromptu speaking or humorous interpretation or dramatic interpretation or debate. Right. And, uh, and, and the more trophies that you win for your team, the better and people celebrated and there was this cohesion and we went to different schools to compete just, just like sports. Right. And that was, was really nice. Definitely. That probably gave you a great start to where you are now with all the speaking that you do and with the chance to, to, um, you know, talk to people so much with your interviews that. Uh, sometimes we we find something we're passionate about that we don't even know, and it comes from a, mis- a uh, not necessarily a mistake. Sometimes it just we step off the path or a detour in life, and then fall in love with something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's exactly right. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do with the public speaking though at the time. It just seemed like something interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, the, my, in fact, my favorite kind of speaking was called impromptu, where you would have. Uh, a list of, of three different topics that would be handed to you. You would have 30 seconds to look at your list of three different topics. And then you'd have to give a five minute speech based on what you choose after that 30 seconds of trying to decide. Uh, yeah. And then you can't use any notes. You just go. Right. So you've that, got to make it up on the fly. You make it up on the fly. Exactly. And that's, that's what I enjoyed more than anything else, but I didn't know how I could really apply that to anything. And when I was growing up, especially in my teen years, my parents told me, whatever you do, do not go into show business. Oh, really? <laughs> yep. 
That's uh, right. Because um, it, it, from their perspective, it was such a, a chancy, risky sort of endeavor. Mm-hmm. I had a, a cousin that tried to become a singer and the best she could do was become a, a waitress at a restaurant where the waitresses were allowed to sing. Okay. So said, oh, yeah. you're going to end up like your cousin, you know, if you get into mm-hmm. show business. So yeah. I didn't see the connection at the time. Now, was there something that you were demonstrating, like an interest in show business that, that prompted them to, to say that? Or was it just kind of a standard, don't go into show business? Well, I, I'd done some theater work. I, I went to a drama like summer camp between uh, my sixth and seventh grade years. And, and I really enjoyed that, both acting and I got to write a, a, a play that got, actually got produced. Oh, wow. I would write scripts uh, just for fun and, and short stories. So yeah, I, I, I loved performing, um, being part of the performing arts. My mom would, would direct plays that she adapted from like children's stories and then work with, with children's groups to put them on. So it was around and, and my parents would act in community theater. So I was around theater. I was around that kind of like community scale show business. Sure. So I, I'd said at different times, like, hey, this looks kind of neat. You know, what if we were to you know, explore this a little bit? And they're like, no, nope, we're not going to do that. <laughs> right. Because my mom yeah. was, a, was a teacher, um, you know, very much a, a you know, respected thing to do at the time. And my mm-hmm. dad was a, a systems engineer. He worked for a defense subcontracting company with a PhD in applied math, but he went to Harvard on a full ride. So right. you know, everything very like, stable. <laughs> everything very stable. Yeah. Exactly. Definitely. And, I, and it's interesting because, you know, we, I, I struggle with this with my kids. Sometimes we, we see what seems like the right path based on the experiences we've had in the world that we know right now. And it kind of comes back to that. We, we were talking about earlier about the world that they're entering and you have to step back as a parent and not put your experience on your kids. Not knowing that, you know, when, when you were coming up, your parents wouldn't have known about, you know, a podcast or internet or social media or any other outlets where entertainment could become a feasible opportunity in a completely different way for many more people than it had in the past. Yeah. But, yeah. And, and you, you know, obviously we're doing things in that industry long before podcasting and internet became a thing. So you were able to, to, to make your way as well, but. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the crazy thing is, I, I, I thought I was going to be a doctor because I, I was one of those kids that had straight A's, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, I ended up graduating high school with like a 4.2 or 4.4 grade point average because of like, you know, advanced classes that I took. And when people would ask me what I wanted to do, I, I couldn't think of anything that literally made sense other than like, um, I'll be a doctor because right. I got doctors in the family. So whenever I would say that people would go, Oh, that's so great. And <laughs> admirable. Go for it. You're smart. Yeah, exactly. Kind of, you know, pat me on the back or whatever. And it felt good, but it didn't feel really genuine to me uh, when I would say that. And so I ended up going to um, do one of the UC university of California schools and it just didn't work the way I thought it was going to work. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I did well in, in my first quarter there in French and visual arts, but uh, I barely squeaked by in math to get an A only because it was all review for the most part. Um, we started getting into some new things that I hadn't studied in calculus, um, you know, toward the end of the class. And I was kind of lost. And I took chemistry. And once we got into oxidation reduction equations, 
uh, again, uh, I, I just could not process. And part of it was, I was going through kind of a stressful time because of a relationship that failed and, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And uh, my parents and I weren't getting along as well as we had in the past. So there was that. Yeah. Um, and so after a quarter at the college, I ended up quitting school, which mm-hmm. uh, my mom had a master's. My dad had his PhD. Uh, again, family full of doctors and you know, la- lawyers and you know, yeah. folks who are very well educated. I was the, f- you talk about families where they're the first person to go to college. Mm-hmm. I was the first person not to go to college. <laughs> yeah. That, so that's yeah, a, that was awkward. Definitely. How did you, how did, how did you step through that? Well, um, I moved to Seattle. Um, okay. For one thing, I decided to just take a reboot of my life. I, I'm, I came to Seattle because I have an uncle who lives here. I came here with my family during the summertime in August, um, like a, a couple of years before, and I was just blown away by the Pacific Northwest and just how beautiful it is here. I really liked the city of Seattle because there was a lot to do. And when I didn't know what to do with my life, since I just felt kind of overwhelmed at college, I figured, well, instead of feeling depressed and that, you know, I was all, all kind of suicidal actually at the time in a way, I thought I'm just going to, I'm going to move to Seattle and just start fresh and we'll see what happens. So um, when I was in high school and, and when I was going to, to college, I worked in a, a men's retail clothing shop. So I thought, okay, I'm going to mm-hmm. find a retail job or something that's like that. And I ended up getting a job in a bank as a teller when okay. I moved to Seattle <laughs> I've, at the time, it was it was really uh, affordable to live in Seattle. So I got an apartment right. on Capitol Hill for like 300 bucks a month with utilities included. Mm-hmm. And I was able to find a teller job that paid me like seven bucks an hour, which. <laughs> yeah, which <laughs> paid know, for, the, for an apartment at that point. Yeah. It did. It did, which is amazing if you think about it now. I mean, yeah, this was a while ago. Uh, but, um, but I started doing that and, and immediately got bored being a teller. Uh, so what I did was when people would line up uh, and, and come to my window, if they had any kind of accent, um, cause I, I love taking foreign languages. So I learned French and I learned Spanish. So if I could tell that someone could speak either French or Spanish based on their accent, I would do the entire transaction in French or in Spanish. Wow. And, and I would do it quick. I'd make sure that everybody was like in and out in 90 seconds. So I counted mm-hmm. the money really quick and didn't make any mistakes and, and sent people on their way. Or if it seemed like they had a sense of humor, I would kind of riff on them like in a Jerry Seinfeld kind of way uh-huh. <laughs> where I would say something like, okay, um, you know, why are, are we as, as slightly overdeveloped apes standing with this artificial barrier separating us, <laughs> passing colored paper back and forth? I mean, what, what is going on here? Right. <laughs> so I, I would do stuff like that. And what happened was uh, after about a month or, or two, people started lining up just to come to my window. Wow. And there were times where the other tellers in the bank had nothing to do. There was no, no customers <laughs> waiting for them, but I had like five or six people waiting to come see me. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Cause that's just what I did. And I found that mm-hmm. interesting. So um, me being all of 19 at the time, I thought that I, I knew something about customer service and, and how to make banking more interesting for everybody. So I kind of wrote a little Jerry Maguire-esque manifesto on how to improve customer service. <laughs> oh, awesome. Like a four-page document about how we all can, can make things uh, you know, more memorable for our customers. And I, I printed out 32 
<laughs> copies of this thing and just right. handed it out around the the bank branch without talking to my branch manager first. Oh, <laughs> mm -hmm. and she fired me for it. Oh my gosh! Wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, granted, uh, she found an excuse of something else that happened. right. Yeah, and that's that's how it works. It's oh, your your dress code's a little off or whatever. You know, you you find the reasons, but yeah, yeah. In this case, it was I, I needed to take a, a an extra day off around a holiday weekend because um, I wanted to see my ex girlfriend in Florida. But that's that's a whole other story, right? <laughs> but still, um, that that was the fuel that um, that uh, gave her the. Uh, impetus to fire me, you know, but, but it was based on that manifesto that right. I passed around without talking to her. <laughs> so I got fired from the bank job. Um, I uh, uh, found another job. Uh, eventually, I couldn't find any other banking jobs that were within walking distance of Capitol Hill where I was living. So I ended up getting into politics. I was one of those uh, field canvassers where I would like knock on your door and tell you about this nonprofit organization that is fighting for education in this case. Uh, and so I did that over uh, one of the most brutal winters we've ever had in Seattle, where there was like two feet of snow on the ground. And <laughs> I'd be out for five hours at a time and you know, there'd be dogs who would be chasing me or crazy people at the door that I'd be knocking on. And, you know, like sometimes when it was really cold, I would just would hope that somebody would invite me in and like give me tea. Right. It was, <laughs> it was really, really cold. It was like that little Matt's girl um, story. If you remember right. that from back in yeah. That's a really hard job to be a field canvasser in the wintertime, you know, oh, and just yeah. in general, like pounding the pavement for four hours a day, every day. Uh, and that's, that was a whole other experience that was, that was fascinating in its own way, but just hard. So I quit. And after I moved to Seattle, my, my dad um, would uh, come up um, periodically on business. Uh, and he did before I moved there too. It was just something that he did. He worked with Boeing, you know, as, as part of a partnership sure. agreement. And so he, um, uh, he and I sort of mended our relationship and he would take me out to dinner uh, to kind of, you know, get to know me as an, as an adult now or young right. adult. And so uh, after I quit my job uh, working in uh, political field canvassing, he asked me, so son, um, where do you see yourself in five years? Hmm. And I'd always had a plan. This was the first time I did not have a plan. Okay. So I tried to like visualize, okay, what, what, what am I going to be doing five years from now? What is my life going to look like? And all I could see was like blackness just oh, dark, a void yeah. and abyss. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I looked at my dad and I said, gosh, I don't know, dead, <laughs> which <laughs> oh, is no. exactly, you know, as a father, you know, yeah. that that's the last thing you want to hear. You wanna hear. Yeah. No, no. So, um, so that was awkward. <laughs> um, <laughs> For sure. How did he uh, respond to that? Um, he was also awkward. <laughs> <laughs> he kind of looked at me like, really? Um, I don't remember exactly what, you know, how we, how we sort of ended that conversation. I just remember him being taken aback mm -hmm. and, you know, I, I probably changed the subject or he did, you know, just sure. to kind of move on from there. Right. But, uh, but that night I could not sleep. Um, I, cause it really bothered me that I, I didn't know what I was going to do. And, and I felt this pressure because, you know, political field canvassing doesn't pay a lot. Just sure. like being a bank teller doesn't pay a lot. So it's not like I had a ton in savings that I could just lean back on for a while. Right. So, uh, so I was literally like going back through all of the things I've done in my life to see what, what are the patterns here? What, what can I do? And so I was thinking about, okay, I, I liked 
um, working at the bank because I enjoyed the customer service. I enjoyed working in, in clothing stores because I got to interact with the public. I, I like the idea of being a doctor because I, I like the idea of helping people. I liked doing public speaking competitions in high school. And so I'm, I'm, I'm like thinking of all these things that I liked or aspects of jobs that I've done. And it just seemed to me that what I liked to do more than anything else was to talk to people. And so then I was thinking to myself, okay, I like to talk to people. How can I get paid to talk to people? Right. <laughs> And I just you know, noodled on that for a while. And, and then this light bulb went off and it, it was saying I should get into talk radio because mm -hmm. then you're getting paid to talk to people. Right. So, um, so after tossing and churning all night, I, I got up in the morning and I pulled out the yellow pages. This again, this is dating myself. <laughs> right. and I remember those. <laughs> yes. The yellow pages had two radio broadcasting schools in Seattle and so I, I called both of them um, once it was late enough in the day to do so. And only one of them sent me information. It was called the National Broadcasting School. And uh, I, I called up my dad and I said, hey, dad, I'd like to uh, go to radio school. I know you'd set aside some money for my college education. Would you mind if we sort of redirect that toward this radio school? And I think my dad was so relieved that I didn't want to kill myself. That <laughs> <laughs> there was at said, least something. <laughs> that's right. That there was at least something. He said, okay. Nice. And so um, that's how I learned how to do radio. Wow. Now, and that's an amazing lesson for you to be able to sit there that evening, sleepless and just sleepless in Seattle, literally. Yeah. Like, trying to come up with what to do. You know, most people don't have that, that thought process till later on in life, if at all, where they can say, this is what I like from this job or this experience and how do I piece those together? So that that's an amazing gift that you were able to identify that early on and step into it with purpose. Yeah. I, I feel really lucky. I mean, I was 19, so it's right. not like, yeah. uh, you know, a lot of years had gone by now. It's, it's one thing to identify what it is you want to do. And it's another thing to actually make it happen. Sure. So, so yeah, I went to radio school. It was a, a six month program. Uh, the National Broadcasting School doesn't exist anymore, um, but uh, it was, a, it was a, a good facility that they had in downtown Seattle. They had two radio stations that you could practice at that had like, you know, a transmitter that, that you know, maybe reached a block or two. So, I mean, it okay, wasn't like, yeah. it was very like super low power transmitters, but there, it was, it was actual radio stations and they had production studios where you could um, you know, practice editing and that kind of thing. You learn how to write newscasts. You learn how to be a disc jockey. And mm -hmm. then at the end of the six month program, they teach you how to write a resume and create an audition tape and, and teach you how to send it yourself out, out there and put yourself out there. Exactly. So I, I did everything that I was supposed to do. I think I graduated valedictorian of my class and ended up sending out like a hundred or more audition tapes and resumes. So I thought, okay, I'm valedictorian in my class. Um, you know, this, this should be easy. But I only got one interview from those 100 plus wow. tapes and, and, and resumes that I sent out. And it was in Wenatchee mm. um, on the other side of the yeah, Cascade Mountains. Three and a half hours, three hours from, from yep. Seattle for, three for and those and a half who are hours. not from around here. Exactly. Over a mountain pass. <laughs> yep, three and a half hours with no traffic. So it was the dead of winter. Um, I think it was January or something when I got this um, uh, interview um, request. And so 
I didn't own a car. Um, that's the other thing. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I would either take the bus or walk everywhere in Seattle. So I had to rent a car and I had to go over a mountain pass in the wintertime to get to this interview. I um, got to the pass and guess what? It was snowing. There were chains required in order to oh, go no. over. So yeah. I didn't own a car. I certainly didn't own tire chains, right. but you know, fortunately there happened to be a guy and a tow truck on the side of the road selling chains for 40 bucks. Wow. And thank goodness I had my checkbook with me <laughs> again, mm-hmm. yeah. myself. Uh, and I wrote him a check for $40. He put the chains on so that I could get over the pass. I was an hour late to my interview uh, because of all of this. Right. Because I didn't anticipate having to deal with that. Um, there were no cell phones at the time. So it's not like I could just, you know, pull over to the side of the road or, or you know, use right. my Bluetooth speaker and, and call the program director of the little station in Wenatchee that I was going to. So I ended up showing up an hour late. Fortunately, I explained the situation and um, that was not as big of a deal as I was afraid it was going to be. <laughs> we had a, a, what I thought was a very nice interview. He ended up putting me up for the night in a motel in Wenatchee wow. that, you know, I didn't have to pay for, which was nice. And uh, I thought, okay, well, I, I should be able to get this radio job. And so I drove back over the past. Fortunately, we didn't need chains to get back because I didn't want to have to put them on myself. I, I, I was, I had like, you know, interview clothes on. It's not like I was right. Yeah. You, you weren't know, planning I, to necessarily spend the night. He wasn't planning to spend the night. Wasn't planning to have to put on tire chains. So it was really, really nice. There was the guy in the tow truck to help me. So I get back over the past and I'm thinking, all right, I got this. And then nothing. Mm. So yeah, I didn't hear back at all. Um, Maybe two weeks later, uh, I got a call from the program director who said, sorry, we ended up hiring somebody else. And I, I, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> it was in shock. Right. I was like, well, there goes my dream. So uh, I ended up getting another bank job. There was fortunately a, a credit union uh, that was within walking distance that I was able to work at. Uh, I, I did the same thing that I did before at the bank where I was enjoying the customer interactions. Uh, one of the customers that ended up uh, coming up to my window ended up eventually becoming my wife. So that was oh, kind of interesting. Nice. Things happen uh, for a reason. I guess. I mean, that, but that, that's another story. Um, but after working at the credit union for a couple of months and hearing no response from any of the resumes and audition tapes that I'd sent out, out of the blue, I got this phone call from the radio station in Wenatchee. And it was the program director that I talked to. Mm. And he said, hey, uh, I really appreciated meeting you a couple of months ago. I wanted to let you know that we have one of our employees who does overnights and weekends. Uh, he is going to go on a cruise to Norway with his dad for six weeks. Would you like to fill in for him? Oh, wow. And so, I mean, this is my only shot that I'm thinking of that I've got to make my career. So I'm thinking, heck yeah, you know, count me in. I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. And he said, okay, um, well, you can stay in his apartment. So it's not like you'll need to find a place to stay. And wow. the apartment is walking distance from the radio station. So um, it should be really convenient for you. So I, it seemed like a great opportunity. He, he paid me like minimum wage. I mean, literally like $3.35 an hour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it was it was a pay cut from what I was getting at the credit right. union, you know, less than half of what I was making there. And so I went to my branch manager at the credit union and I said, Hey, uh, I've always wanted to work in radio and I've got this opportunity for six weeks to go work in Wenatchee. Can I have a leave of absence and I'll be back when I'm done? And she said, no. Right. 
So what am I going to do? Um, I've got a stable job with healthcare and you know other benefits, or do I risk it and and uh, quit my job at the credit union and take this opportunity that might not lead anywhere in a town that I really don't want to live in, but it's radio. <laughs> right. So I went for it. I kept my apartment on Capitol Hill because it still was pretty cheap at the time. I think it went up to like $330 a month. Right. <laughs> so um, I ended up hopping on a Greyhound bus to get me over to Wenatchee and moved into this guy's apartment. Um, it was like uh, one of four units that shares a bathroom. I mean, it was, okay. was awkward. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, yeah. Um, and yeah, and, and did, did the job for, for six weeks. I got to practice reading newscasts and, and being a DJ and, and it was for an AM station and an FM station. So I got a lot of experience packed into those six weeks. Mm -hmm. I even had to deal with like, you know, crazy phone callers who would call you at two in the morning wanting to do phone sex. That was awkward. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, and, and what, what I think we, we don't realize in the moment, you know, we have these opportunities and they seem like they're smaller opportunities because it's a smaller station in a smaller town. But because we're in a smaller business, we're learning every single aspect of that industry or that job rather than just my job is to be on the mic and do this one thing. And that has to have set you up very well for a lot of um, knowledge and experience for what you stepped into from there. Yeah, it was it was good. Um, I did learn a lot. And when six weeks were up, the program doctor basically said, thank you very much. You can, you know, move on to whatever you're going to do next. Oh, mm -hmm. So that didn't lead anywhere. I ended up coming back to Seattle. I looked for work, couldn't find any. Uh, but then after about three months, and I don't know how I made it, I think I borrowed some money from my parents actually is what I did. Uh, I found a weekend job at a station in Seattle. It turned out that those six weeks in Wenatchee was just enough experience for me to get hired by this station in Seattle. King News Talk 1090 at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. King AM, which was in the King TV building. And that was, that was super cool. Yeah. So uh, I got to do that. I, I had to find a job that paid, you know, more than $4 an hour, which that one was. And that had health benefits and could actually cover my rent because just eight hours a day on weekends, Saturdays and Sundays wasn't enough to do that. Right. So I, I found a job selling traveler's checks at the AAA, <laughs> um, which was a full-time job. So I was working seven days a week in order to keep the radio dream alive. Yeah. You and, know, you, uh, you made a comment when you didn't get the job and when actually the first time that there goes my dream. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like we all, sit in that space sometimes where we do the things, we go to the school, we send off the tapes, the resumes, and then we don't get the results. And we think that was our shot. Yeah. And, and I guess that's what, what did that, you know, you went back to the bank and you kind of set it aside and you were waiting for the other things, but did you really give up or did, was, was there any other chance where you were thought, well, maybe there's more action I can take. Maybe there's something else I can do. Honestly, I thought I was done. Yeah. Yeah. How did that feel? It was sad. <laughs> Honestly, um, um, it was, it was worse, I think, than, than, you know, having to give up football, um, you know, sure. because this was my career. This was, I, I this was my epiphany that I was going to get paid to talk to people. I mean, I, I didn't think that 
that my life was completely ruined at that point because I was, I was enjoying working at the bank again. I, I felt like, okay, at least I have a job. At least I'm, I'm financially independent from my parents. I'm able to cover the rent. I'm able to have health insurance. I've got enough money to go out for dinner once a week, you know, just to enjoy the, the city a little bit and go to movies and stuff like that, have a life. So I figured this is going to lead me somewhere. I just don't know where. Okay. That's why I was just, wondering if if there was a specific lesson that came from that from having it having the rejection but then later having an opportunity come up from it you know even though it didn't turn into a full-time job in Wenatchee um what would you say would be your biggest lesson from that beginning process have faith you know really trust that that things will be okay one way or another is is really the takeaway that I had because after the six week job ended, I really didn't have any prospects. I, I did when I got back to Seattle, look for jobs in banking like I had before or jobs in retail that I thought would cover the rent again, you know, thinking sort of short term at age, I think I was 20 at the time, almost. Yeah, no, I was 20. Um, but, you know, thinking that somehow it was going to work out uh, mm -hmm. again, just not knowing exactly what that would look like. But um, one of the things that happened was um, as a result of the radio school that I went to, I was uh, invited to do some work for the, the this was a long time ago, this, the, the, the Goodwill Games that, that Seattle mm -hmm. was hosting. Yeah. It was like Seattle and Russian athletes or U.S. and Russian athletes at the University of Washington um, campus in the Husky Stadium. There was events and things. So I... I uh, signed up uh, to do work with them um, because one of my radio instructors at the National Broadcasting School had connections there. So I, I went to a couple of planning meetings. They gave me a check for $1,000 uh, to do this. Mm -hmm. And so um, with that $1,000, I ended up buying a, my first suit because um, I thought, okay, I should buy a suit that I would use for interviews. So I went ahead and, and, and did that. And, uh, and so I, I, I had this suit and then when the job opened up in Seattle, that, that part-time weekend thing, I put on my suit that I bought from the Goodwill games, uh -huh. again, which I really didn't do any work for, but, but somehow it, it, it appeared. And, uh, and, and I think because I presented myself well from the experience I'd had with public speaking and, and just customer interface and, and helping people feel relaxed and that kind of thing. I think that's why I got the job. The program director kind of took a chance on me knowing that I only had six weeks of real experience. Right. So yeah, it's, it's that, that trust that things are going to be okay mm -hmm. was really the thing. Yeah. Now, before we, uh, before we head out, I do want to hear a little bit about, you know, how people can really get to know you on your show and what's the story behind the Eric Corman show and the, Tell us what you have going on. So maybe a couple quick lessons on what you've learned from some of the guests you've had over the years, because your goal there really is to learn from others. And so you're taking this passion to talk to people to the next level by really having great conversations with your show. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the Eric Corman show, um, it's on iHeartRadio, it's on Apple Podcasts, it's on Spotify. So just search the Eric Corman show, or you can just go to Eric spelled A-R-I-K online. Com. So ericonline.com, that'll, that'll take you to the iHeartRadio page. So the premise of my show is that I am on a journey to learn from superhumans, people who have done remarkable things 
or have remarkable ideas to share so that, as you said, I can be the best dad I can for my son. So it's, it's been, it's been a fantastic journey. I've been doing this show now for, it'll be 10 years in July. Wow. So that's, yeah. that's, yeah, that's been a long time. And I, I feel very fortunate that from working in radio in Seattle for as many years as I did, I was able to develop contacts with publishing houses in New York and uh, venues like um, Seattle Theater Group here in Seattle, for example, in Town Hall, so that I can either be notified of guests that are available, or uh, if I see someone that's coming through town that I want to talk to, I can reach out to them and then they'll listen and, right. and help me arrange the interview. So I've talked to people recently, like uh, comedian Lewis Black, who um, you might remember from, the, there's a Pixar movie called Inside Out, and he played the voice of anger. In yeah. There, and he's been doing stand-up <laughs> comedian, stand-up comedy for like 40 years, uh, no, a yeah. very, very long time. And so um, we talked about his journey and what that looked like and, uh, and, and finding one's passion and, and not giving up. So you know, learning about what worked for him, again, trying to pull lessons from people in his sphere and, and, and just not, not giving up, um, that was a big one. The last interview I posted was with Virginia Johnson. She's the artistic director of Dance Theater of Harlem and considered a, an iconic um, ballerina because she, she had a career that lasted like 30 years. I mean, it's, as, as a ballet dancer, that's really unusual. Right, yeah. So uh, I asked her, like, what do you, what do you suggest that, that young people do to follow their dreams? And she said, uh, be curious more than anything. Mm. And, uh, and the other thing is you need to work hard because <laughs> it's not going right. to just fall into your lap. You've, you've got to earn it. Yeah. So I thought that was a big one. Um, I, I talked recently to the chief speech writer for Barack Obama. His name is Cody Keenan. And I said to him, okay, for our kids who want to make a difference in the world or are not sure how to engage in the political process, what kind of advice would you give? And he said, what, what young people should do is pick an issue or two issues that they care about more than anything else. It could be climate change, for example. Mm -hmm. And then when it's time to vote, what you want to do is look at the candidates that are on the ballot and see how they stand on your issue. So vote the issue, don't vote the personality. Right. And so if you're always voting your issue, then you'll make sure that it's getting worked on the way that you want it to be worked on. Yeah, that's a that's a great advice because I, I think even older people could could use that reminder of how is it that you're choosing to vote. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love yeah. that. Yeah. Um I, I've talked to um uh Brian Green, the astrophysicist, and I've I've talked to him about, okay, so you know, how do we think about our place in the universe? And mm -hmm. and he says, you know, look for the wonder. I mean, the fact that we're even here, that that there's such an, you know, a, a tiny chance that that we could even exist. You know, <laughs> find find the just the the wow factor of of how big the universe is and that we even get to be part of it. Right. So, so that's one way of like, you know, lifting up above, a, a, you know, any like day-to-day -day challenges that we're facing, you know, so that's, yeah. that's, that's one perspective that I'll try to use for myself and also help my son get over whatever he's going through. So it's, you know, it's <laughs> such a, think about how, 
yeah how, oh, yeah. how random it is that we even exist right yeah and it's such a great lesson because you've got you have such a range of diversity in guests with their experience their their backgrounds and what's so beautiful about that and I, this is i try to surround myself with people like that as well from every different walk of life because all of those lessons come together to give us a different perspective and a different way to feed that curiosity where you say, okay, if I'm curious and I'm learning as much as I can, I have to be open to hear it from as many different angles as possible. That's the only way you really can feed that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. And because everybody brings their own perspective, whether it's a, an actor or a sports figure or a musician or a scientist or somebody in the news, you know, like, uh, you know, Salman Rushdie, for example, I got a chance to, <laughs> to talk to him, um, which was amazing. Definitely. Yeah. Very humble guy, which I did not expect, you know, or somebody like Robert Reich, the secretary of labor under Clinton, who, who teaches at Berkeley. And he was the one who said, if you're ever feeling down, talk to young people, they'll, they'll pick you right up. Oh, I love that. That's, that's, that's a great perspective. You know, I, um, my mentor, I meet with him every week. He's 88 and I have, uh, people, um, I do a little stand up and stuff. So I, people, in my scene that are anywhere from, you know, 16, 18, and then, you know, my kids and their friends. And uh, it's just amazing to see the range of, of personality, inspiration, and also uh, foresight from people at every level. So I love it. Now, Eric, before we go, I, I, uh, I could talk to you for hours. I'm loving these, uh, all these stories you're sharing as you were talking about going over the past to Wenatchee and the phone book and the, the not having a cell phone. I just, I was having this, this flashback to how many things, how different life was back then. And, and um, how we, we don't realize how much technology has changed. Like you couldn't just hop on a zoom interview and say, let's do this interview from four hours away via zoom or, right. or however we want to do it. Uh, so it's really been kind of a trip down memory lane of what life has been like over the years. But, but before we go, uh, what, what would be some, one last piece of advice that you would leave for people on how they could really step in and own their awkward. I would say, know yourself, you know, as, as much as you can um, find what it is that lights you up. My son over the weekend, actually, he was, he, he gave me a new term, which is try hard. So I thought, okay, what's try hard. Uh, and then I thought it was somebody who is trying too hard to be okay. something they're not. But mm -hmm. no, he said it, a tryhard is somebody who finds that thing that they're really good at and, and they just do that thing better than anybody else. Oh. So he said, like, for example, um, one of my uh, classmates is, is super fast and so he can outrun everybody. So, uh, so he's a tryhard at, at, at track and field. And then um, there's, there's somebody on my ultimate Frisbee team who's like really good at ultimate Frisbee. So he's, he's better than everybody else at ultimate Frisbee. So he's the tryhard there. And so yeah, I, um, over the weekend, I was uh, uh, emceeing an auction and, uh, and I told my son that I'm going to emcee this auction. And he said, dad, why are you, why are you doing that? And I said, well, I, 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 I enjoy getting in front of people and, and emceeing events. I, I guess that's my try hard. Mm -hmm. So I would say, find your try hard. What do you do better than anything else? Or what do you want to do better than anybody else that you think you can actually achieve? Right. I love that. I, I have not heard that term because I would have interpreted it the same way that you did at first, where it's someone who's, you know, trying too hard to be something. Uh, but I love that because it comes down to that, what you're passionate about, what you want to do, and then lining that up with, with your skills. So it's beautiful. 
Well, thank you so much, Eric, and everybody listening. Be sure that you click on the links to go listen to his show, check out his website, give him all the support. And when you're doing that, be sure to like, comment, and share on his stuff so that it can get out there in the world. Because when we're putting stuff out there too, as podcasting and hosting shows, we don't always see if it helps people. So unless someone's giving us that feedback, we're just going through our day, hope, you know, putting sound out there and hoping that it's making a difference. So it, it, I mean, I know for me, it makes a big difference when I hear something. I, and I'm sure it's the same for you. Yep. Definitely. Well, thank you very much, Eric. It's been a great pleasure. And thank you. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Excellent. And everybody else, be sure as always to own your awkward. Thank you so much for listening in for today's show. Be sure to visit awkwardcareer.com to continue your journey. And of course, please like, subscribe, and share with your friends so they can find their awkward side and learn how to own it. <laughs>